2: A very warm welcome to all of you to season two of This Week in Intelligent Investing. It's wonderful to be back. Uh, We have a terrific season ahead. We will also uh, be hosting some uh, wonderful guests as we go along. Uh, But I am just uh, so excited to welcome uh, today uh, my co-hosts, Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. Great to have you here, guys. Uh, Let's uh, get right into it. I'll turn it to Phil.
1: Thanks, John. It's great to be back. It seems like it was a lot longer than a few weeks. So I'm glad to be back and get back to uh, our normal routine. So yeah, over the past few weeks, I think like a lot of people, I I took some time away. We had a couple of uh, family trips. So it was kind of nice to unplug in that regard and, and get away from the usual work routine. And one of the things I was thinking about um, while we had some of those lazy days of summer was why, you know, when you, when I did re-engage like at the end of the day or sometimes after a few days and just sort of glance through what was going on in the world, it, it was really stark to me how it, and it's been going on for a long time, obviously, but seemingly all news is good news when it comes to security prices. And it just sort of, you know, that little bit of detached perspective got me thinking more about market cycles and feedback loops and everything that's been going on in the world because it's really easy. I think lately it's been pretty easy to look at what's going on in the world and just assume that it would be bad, right? I mean, if you take just the last 18 months, and again, you to know, talk about something that feels longer than what it's actually been. I mean, the last 18 months feels like it's been seven or eight years, but you've obviously had the COVID-19 pandemic, which has completely reshaped the world in ways that I think we still don't really understand. We've had massive amounts, particularly in the U.S., or at least in the U.S., massive amounts of social unrest, uh, you know, extreme political dysfunction, you know, a, a lost generation or a lost couple of years at least at school for many children, you know, a plunge in the labor participation rate, a massive explosion in fiscal deficits, you know, interest rates have continued to be kind of defying uh, what a lot of people think they should be doing. You've uh, got a plunge in birth rate. I mean, just lots of things that I don't think portend well for the next, say, five to 10 years and possibly for a generation or more, right? I mean, when you look at labor participation rates, and you think about people that have dropped out of the workforce. Those are people that we would need to drive the economy forward for the next 10, 20 years. And we're not just going to bring them all back overnight or even in a month or a year or sometimes not even in a decade. So none of that seems to be positive, right? And there are offsetting positives, right? It could have been. I'm still shocked, frankly, that the fallout from the pandemic wasn't wasn't worse. Uh, I'm shocked at how well the combination of transfer payments and fiscal and monetary stimulus worked, Um, certainly the advent of certain technological tools, everything from you know, information technology abilities to track and manage inventory and manage supply chain disruptions has been a huge boon and, and certainly dampened the traditional business cycle and, and inventory problems as bad as they've been they could have been far far worse um, and certainly things like the mrna platforms that are the foundation of many of the modern vaccines that are that are muting the effects of the pandemic that could be so much worse i'm not i'm usually a glass half full kind of guy right i mean if somebody asked me to describe my outlook on most things, I think it would normally be that I would or I, I consider myself and aspire to be and try to consciously push myself toward being a rational optimist, right? I mean, there's no sense in being starry-eyed and naive and overly optimistic, but likewise, I don't really ever fall into the trap of the pessimism that kind of sells you know, I think it's a great way to market investment funds and get lots of news clicks and eyeballs is to be overly pessimistic and constantly decry all the things that are going wrong in the world. So I'm not trying to do that either. But it does kind of stand out to me, right? I mean, market cycles just seem to have been truncated and shrunk down so much more, even in just my relatively brief career. I mean, if you think back to prior generational disruptions, you know, you wouldn't have had. Whatever it was, I think it was 164 days last year between, you know, the fastest ever decline in in market prices. I think we're down 34 percent in the S and P 500 in a couple of weeks, and then right back to all-time new highs 164 days later. It was something like that. Those numbers might be slightly off, but you know, things like the Great Depression or major wars or just asset bubbles that needed to be popped. Those things generally always took a couple of years to play themselves out, right? And there was always kind of this pull and. Push between a two to three year rebalancing of the business cycle and these longer kind of fifteen to twenty year waves in both fundamentals and demographics and sentiment—they're all combining in weird ways—and that just seems to have been kind of kind of thrown out the window. I mean, I, I I read back into history as to what it was like for investors when you know the market basically went nowhere from the late '60s to 1982. I mean, that kind of stuff, right? Where you're just trading in these relatively narrow bands for a long period of time. And people have tried to call that type of environment again. It just hasn't happened, right? I mean, we've just kind of been on this relentlessly optimistic march as it comes to, as it comes to security prices. And so John actually sent around, I don't know, uh, Francois Sicart, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, um, but he's got a blog uh, through, his, through his firm. And John sent this around. There's an interesting essay called Nostalgia Isn't What It Used to Be which he admits is just kind of a title he'd been trying to find a use for. (laughs) But it it came out about a week ago. Um, The point of it was talking about looking back at like Paul Volcker and the inflation war that he was fighting. uh, This was from an essay, or it was an essay adapted from a speech he gave in 1978 when he was still uh, president of the New York Fed before he was chairman of the Federal Reserve. And, you know, he was extremely consumed with, with inflation, but he was also consumed with this idea of complacency and the fact that, you know, economists were convinced that they had sort of eliminated the post-war cyclicality that they'd always kind of seen in the world, or or really even the pre-war cyclicality they'd seen. And they, these counter-cyclical policies that economists had conjured up had really conquered the business cycle. And the essay goes on to point out a lot of really valuable things about how inherently in just about any system, stability leads towards instability. And the vagaries of human behavior and psychology lead to lots of unpredictable things. And I think that's where we ought to be standing today. And instead, I look around and, and see all this chaos and, and frankly, entropy in the world and, and don't see that reflected in a lot of security prices. But you know, that doesn't mean there's an obvious answer to it. So this is where I'm going to be looking to, to you guys to chime in as to what to do about it. And, and maybe there's still not a clear answer. There almost certainly isn't a clear answer. But one framework that I liked in this essay um, was VUCA volatility uncertainty complex, complexity and ambiguity sorry ambiguity so volatility uncertainty complexity ambiguity and that was drawn from the US Army War College as an acronym they created for the post cold world post cold war world planning scenarios that they'd run where you know they had sort of always operated under one scenario right which was the US engaged in the cold war and then all of a sudden really overnight. And in one sense, like the cold war kind of appeared to be over and now what do you do? Right. So you have all these like uncertainties swirling around volatility and ambiguity and complexity and all these issues to deal with. And I thought those were four really good things to keep focused on. And so I don't know. I mean, what comes next? I think the answer is who knows. But I think the one thing to focus on right now is that confidence and complacency seem like the the mantra and the zeitgeist right now for many, many people. And uh, it just seems like no matter which way you turn in business, uh, particularly in, in securities markets and the investment world, we're just, you know, those are the those are the prevailing things of the day. And so I don't know what to do about it other than to stick to my knitting and hold cash and be willing to look like an idiot for as long as it takes to, to ride this out. So what do you guys think? I mean, have, have cycles really been shortened up i guess is one answer right i mean do you really think that now when when bad things happen and markets kind of fall out of bed you have days and maybe a few weeks instead of months and a few years for that to be processed and taken advantage of or is that overstating it and then secondarily do you agree with my assessment on on where we stand today in terms of confidence and complacency
0: yeah, I think you raise a lot of good questions there, and not just the two you ended off with. But, you know, I do think there's been this um, swifter response from policymakers with more force than has been the case in the past. And part of that is the development of a new toolkit during the financial crisis, where in some ways the response started slower than it should have and then got to be quite uh, aggressive. And so, you know, every time something seems to be happening, there's the sign that there's going to be more support and help. And therefore, you know, people come back in with force once that's clear. I think, you know, that quote you had about stability leads to instability. I'm pretty sure that could be attributed to Hyman Minsky, though, you know, that probably exists in other context, too. And, you know, I think during the crisis I got really, uh, I I read just about everything I could from Minsky and I'd say I became a self-described Minskyite and view his framework as kind of the greatest fusion of Austrian and, um, well, call it freshwater and saltwater economics that I've seen. Like the way he fused the financialization of the economy with these Keynesian principles of having to support uh, demand when demand falls short. Um, because the underlying kind of edifice of the entire monetary side of the economy could fall apart is 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 quite profound and interesting. And you know, he was a very big. Uh, he was very insistent that over complacency is actually what creates the conditions for economies to fall off. Um, you end up with what he called Ponzi underwriting standards across the economy, not to be confused with Ponzi scheme per se, but it was d- a distinct allusion to that. And so, yeah, you know, that's definitely a problem. But, you know, I would come at this from a different angle. When we were taking our break, I wrote my most recent letter and I compared what COVID's done to the economy with what, um, you know, I'm a fish fan. I've spoken about this before. They have this thing called type one or type two jamming. So, I don't know if all of you are familiar with the band Fish. If not, brief background is they play songs and improvise around them. So type one jamming would be taking a core structure of a song and noodling around a structure without leaving it. But type two is saying, like, you know, you start a song and then you end up in a completely different space that effectively has no no tether to where you started at all and structures left entirely. And the way I see it with COVID, I mean, we've left structure, as a society in the biggest, most profound way that we've experienced since World War II. Um, and I love that. Love those phrases that you gave um, from the post-Cold War planning of uh, risk, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. Um, did I miss the first one? I, I might've gotten the first one wrong there. Um, vol- vol- volatility. Yeah, volatility, concerning. that's right. Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. And I think that's fantastic. I think it's so apt. And it makes me think a lot about jamming and music. Um, you know, in fish, there's also they they compose their songs based on tension release, where you build up these periods of intense tension and then release it. Um, and you know, one of the things about type two jamming, where you leave structure, is that both risk and reward are greatest. The worst moments and the best moments tend to happen in those. And so that's not to say there's something. Um, that's fundamentally good about COVID in the end, but leaving structure creates interesting things in the theoretical sense. And it gives opportunity to try things that otherwise could not have been tried. And when you do that, it opens doors that make new things possible. Um, But it also, you know, the other side of that is it increases risk tremendously, um, especially when you're coming out of a period of like rising social tension. So it's unclear exactly how that's Going to resolve, but I feel like what may be interpreted as complacency today is actually a period of rising tension without having experienced the release, and we don't know which way that's going to go. Um, and there are signs that it could go in either direction, but by and large, you know, I, I I do think there's some pretty like constructive underlying forces in certain areas of the economy, certain areas of. Um, Just think about one thing where like right now, I I mean, while I was away, I was up in Lake Placid and literally every place I went to had a help wanted sign. A couple of our favorite restaurants, we've been going there for six years now, um, couldn't even open on some days because they can't hire enough staff. You know, that's a bad thing in the short run. It definitely crimps supply and you hear about supply shortages in a lot of industries. But on the other hand, you know, there's a lot of demand and there's a lot of, um, you know, people getting jobs who had harder times in the past. And part of it is like you know, there's a friction in moving people from maybe brick and mortar and uh, you know more traditional uh, tied to physical location jobs to ones that are physical but help the digital world. So there's there's definitely a friction in getting people to new places, but um, some of these forces could be quite strong and could be really helpful and could lead to much better outcomes down the line. Uh, we just don't know how it's all going to play out yet. So I don't know if it's really complacency. I've, I feel a lot of tension. I see tension. You could just see it in some of these like town halls about mask policies. And, I, you know, I think that's stepping outside of the economic sphere. I know you're asking something a little different, Phil, but like um, so maybe it's complacency in underwriting standards. But, you know, I, I, I think this tension is the sign that something's going to be released. And, you know, I, I think about it from that angle. Well, I I agree that it's a paradox, right? Because you're right. There's a ton
1: of underlying tension in just about every facet of life these days, economic and and capital markets, life included. But the complacency I was talking about was more just this pervasive belief that the Fed always has your back. Asset prices only go up. You know, every dip is a buying opportunity. Nothing's ever overvalued, you know, right? I mean, like, I think when Dave Portnoy of Barstool Sports is like a leading authority for tens or hundreds of thousands of people risking real money in in the in the securities markets every day and and his mantra is only is is very simple it's that stocks only go up right i mean that's the kind of complacency i'm talking about I, i think across the whole market in almost every asset class i think that's generally true that the optimism is pretty well baked in and crowding out any of the pessimism so that's the complacency and i agree i think it's a really weird time because You're right. There is a lot of underlying tension, otherwise, and there are some underlying positives in the economy. Like I mentioned, I mean, you know, you can put a positive spin on it, as you just did, with the fact that you know labor participation has plunged, and millions of people are still out of work who should otherwise be employed, and there's a a great mismatch right now between job openings and, and job applicants, and that over time could be somewhat of a net positive. I kind of see that a little bit as a as a net negative, right? I mean, I don't think you'd want to last, you don't want that structural mismatch to last too long, right? Would, would be the, the concern I'd have. But uh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird and it, it is hard to kind of diagnose it in short order, that's for sure.
2: Yeah, Phil, I definitely agree that just given the run-up we've had in the market that, um, you know, there's not much fear out there right now um so whether you call it complacency or enthusiasm uh you know definitely news tends to be interpreted bullishly um that otherwise might not be um you know if the economy is strong that's a bullish sign if the economy is weak that's also bullish because that means the fed can uh, remain dovish and we're going to have low interest rates and uh, that means valuations can be higher so anyway, you cut it uh, people are finding ways to uh, to interpret uh, the news positively, except maybe for what's been going on with some of the kind of uh, big uh, internet companies in China, where I think people are kind of uh, revising uh, their sentiment a, a little bit. Uh, but you know, when you look at uh, what's what's happened with spacs, with uh, IPOs, uh, just generally running at uh, record levels. Uh, the Goldman Sachs money losing companies index and how that's done, you know, we're, we're clearly closer to an enthusiastic level in the market than the opposite. And I think, you know, a big question for me is, um, what is that interplay between the online world and the offline world, really? Uh, I don't think we fully understand that. That's also where the inflation debate comes in, because if everything's moved online, um, that's deflationary. Uh, if we're not really interested in real goods, uh, then clearly um, there's not going to be inflation. Um you know anecdotally for me i don't really see that people consume less stuff because they spend more time online i mean i find that in my family we order quite a lot of actual uh, goods that need to be made and shipped and uh, maybe even more so because you're online and you see things and you want things and so forth so um you know, but but that's really the the unresolved question in my mind um, that we've had the Fed just be so aggressive and accommodative and and you could say um, you know massive money printing if you if you want, but there haven't been consequences to date, and it's kind of you know is it too good to be true or is there a new paradigm? And I think once that um, gets resolved one way or the other. I think then we're going to see a a big move in the market uh, one way or the other.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. That's kind of what I'm thinking about It's like, you know, is there a new paradigm here or have we really found some better, higher level of existence, right? Because to your point, I mean, it's not that there's some deterministic future and one truth that anyone can divine at a given point. I mean, a huge believer that just because history went one direction doesn't mean other things weren't possible, right? There's not just one path that's preordained here. But, and I, I think that's part of the complacency argument even that I'm making is that because things have worked out so well and a lot of the things that could have, wrong, could have gone wrong didn't go wrong, that people are acting like, well, of course it had to work out this way. Like that was all in the cards and nothing bad can ever happen. And that's where it's started. Like, yeah, I get it. Like there's not, you know, a lot of this fact, back- the air has come out of the spec balloon at least to a certain degree but you know i mean there's just so much rampant speculation in in that market still and so many valuations of all sorts of things that, that don't make any sense and i think the attitude that persists isn't like boy that was so stupid i can't believe i gambled on this thing it was like oh yeah you know that didn't really work out but i'm going to keep going to the casino it would be kind of my diagnosis of the overall atmosphere and so Look, yeah, I don't have any strong advice or prescriptions or answers for any of this kind of stuff other than I think it's epistemically true that volatility is inevitable and that instability is is a result of stability over time in any sort of system like the markets that we're operating in. So I think it just behooves people to be You know, not to go to all cash or gold or hide it under your mattress or anything like that. I'm not saying anything even close to that, but I think this VUCA, you know, kind of mantra that came out of uh, geopolitical planning post Cold World, post Cold War, is a a good way of thinking about it. So I'll leave it at that.
0: Well, one thing I've been thinking about a lot, which is kind of similar uh, but a little different, you know, is it even appropriate right now to speak of just the stock market because Uh, Coming out of the financial crisis for the next 10 years, we had way higher than average correlations amongst and between stocks, both in sectors and between sectors. And since COVID started, there's been tremendous dispersion. Obviously, you know, I'm not talking about the crash itself because that was just a unique event. But coming out of that, you know, the first trade was this basket of winners, and then was the Uh, vaccine recovery trade. But even within these, like right now, I think dispersion is very high and the leadership at the top of the market is somewhat narrow and not quite as strong as it looks altogether. Like how do these things factor into thinking broadly and thinking about everything all at once? Um, And have you guys observed this as well? I know you could quantify it and it's definitely true. uh, But how, how do you feel about that? I didn't follow. how do I feel about
1: non-equity? Related?
0: No, about dispersion in, in markets. Oh, like, dispersion you know, in for markets? For 10 years, we had it where like when stocks went up, stocks went up. But now it's like, you know, you'd yeah, have maybe three sectors leading things and everything else lagging. And then, you know, hand it off to different leaders and other things kind of like lose their ground. Yeah, no, that's true. And that's, I
1: mean, that's a fair point. And you're right. I mean, it was kind of unusually correlated for a while there. Um, but I think it all kind of stems from, an excess of capital. And I think it, you're right. It's definitely not just the publicly traded securities markets, you know, equity or anything else for that matter. I mean, you, you see, you know, in my opinion, a pervasive attitude of, of gambling and speculation rather than analysis and probabilistic thinking about where things might go. So, and that applies to cryptocurrencies, physical commodities, bank loans, you know, junk junk yields are at like an all-time record low right now in corporate. So, I mean, it, it seems to apply to pretty much everything, I think.
0: Yeah, the risk-taking is definitely pretty... Biz- We've seen some bizarre stuff this year in particular, right? Going back to February, January, February, and then more recently, the meme stock phenomenon. I think, John, that relates to your point about um, a lot more of the world going digital in general, I, I, I feel like that lends itself to these kinds of forces. Yeah, I mean, I, I just
2: feel like things can run up so much while the the fundamentals of it are unresolved, you know, because you can argue one side or the other, take crypto, right? We don't know if Bitcoin has any value or not. That's going to be clear 10 years from now, probably, Uh, maybe much sooner. But in the meantime, because of what's happening in the markets and uh, all the liquidity and all the the speculative behavior, you know, you have things like Dogecoin that now looks like the conservative bet compared to Doge's wife, which I just found out uh, a few days ago. I don't know if you guys even... That's the this, I had but... no clue
0: Doge had a wife.
2: No, no, there, well, there's now a crypto called like Doge's wife, and that crypto yeah. has been going up huge. That's
1: what I mean. Like what are we
2: Wow?
1: So
0: yeah, and on the one hand, yeah. you want to say volatility is an expression that there's a wide range of potential outcomes. On the other hand, Doge is just a meme anyway. Yeah, or you
2: take the NFT phenomenon. You know, you can, you can now argue for it or against it. Um, there's not going to be any immediate winner to that argument. So, it's just, a, you know, it's just a, a kind of a function of supply and demand right now. And any price is possible. Uh, in the future, it's going to be very clear whether there was any value or not. Um, so, you know, but I definitely agree with kind of the general sentiment that, that Phil you voiced, which is basically people are not really thinking much about the downside right now. They're thinking about what can I get in to make the quick buck uh, because so many of those uh, things have worked. Anyway, uh, let's uh, let's move on to Elliot. Uh, you've got a, a, an interesting one for this week as well.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I had a really good, uh, break from the pod, uh, did the annual family trip to Lake Placid, as we mentioned, I, um, had some good time to kind of get back to a good reading recipe, which had been basically destroyed when COVID started and the kids were spending a lot more time at home. And, um, you know, I got to think about a lot of things. I also had a somewhat adverse, specific day in the stock market with one of what came into the year is one of my larger positions. And it got me thinking about a lot of things. So on one of our earlier podcasts, I spoke about Canby and the opportunity in the U.S. sports betting industry. And, you know, at RGA, we first wrote up Canby in March 20, uh, sorry, in, in the fall of 2019. And, you know, it was a position that we had a lot of hope for and thought it was an interesting setup where... At the time, they hadn't lost DraftKings as a customer, uh, nor had they launched Penn, Though they had recently uh, signed what was called a long-term deal with Pen and, um, you know, Pen Gaming to be specific. And um, not terribly long after that, DraftKings made it official that they were leaving uh, Canby as a client. But the way we had underwritten the idea was um, if they're able to. Uh, keep DraftKings, it was worth somewhere 275 or up in Krona per share. Um, but if they lost DraftKings, it was worth you know, the high 100s, which at the time, it was a stock trading in the uh, 120s and 130s. So that was a pretty good risk reward, as we saw it, where even in the most adverse fundamental development they were facing, um, they'd still be worth more than the stock market price. And I increasingly got convinced they had a good position in the. US industry. Um, but you know what happened along the way, the stock actually was you know obviously one of the things I had contemplated at the time of underwriting the position was they might actually benefit in a recession because states would be more quick to legalize and regulate uh, sports betting so that would help them uh, achieve their market ambitions quicker rather than slower and obviously pulling forward the future is a net present value positive. Um, but who would have guessed that the first recession they deal with is when sports have to stop entirely, and there is thus no sports betting. Um, but they have, you know, a very low uh, level of fixed costs. They're able to um, keep some international uh, sports alive, like ping pong, to get some of the, I don't know, junkier betters in there, um, and keep the business uh, pumping along. And then sports came back with a vengeance. People were far more focused, betting. More states did, in fact, legalize and regulate. That happened much quicker than I expected. Um, But where I'm going with this is I identified a fundamental uh, flaw in my sell discipline and my process on the sell side. And I need to think a lot more about the contrast between when a position goes from thinking about the underwriting to thinking about... Um, position management and what an exit strategy looks like and how to approach that. Um, one thing that was fundamentally true of when, where, and how I underwrote the position, I felt the risk reward was asymmetrically skewed to the positive. So even while I identified you know, the 170-ish bear case, which was above the stock price, 275-ish upside case, I thought there was a potential for something even better, uh, where they keep DraftKings, Penn realizes their ambition, and the market ends up in a more fragmented end state. And By no means felt this was absolutely necessary, Um, but there was a real asymmetry there. The problem is the stock came into this year on a high note at uh, about um, 400 Krona per share, and the asymmetry actually flipped where the reward was less than the risk. And while I have no hard, fast rule on how I... Take on positions. What I generally look for is some skew in the reward to risk ratio, where I want it to be three to one or better. Where I'm, you know, going to be rewarded three units for every one unit of risk, and then I'll think about, you know, how likely the reward side is versus the risk side to be realized. So, the greater the skew is on the likelihood to the reward side, the the better the risk reward. uh, The 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 lower an actual reward to risk ratio I'd accept, right? I'd I'd pay uh, more for certainty than I would for uh, high uncertainty. And, you know, I I talked about Nick Sleep in one of the episodes and he he had a great quote about uh, how when a business is moving along, you probability weight the branches. And he would, his quote is, we would propose that some businesses, once they have progressed down the first favorable branch, stand a much greater chance of progressing down the second favorable branch and then the third as a virtuous feedback loop builds. And I think about this with something like Roku where the business, you know, as they moved down favorable branches, it opened more doors, increased their power in the industry, gave them more different vectors to explore for monetization. So it actually helped meaningfully increase their addressable market and can be every bit they moved toward their achievement of ambition. In fact, it did not increase the future potential possibilities Uh, It only was capturing and harvesting what was there in their actual runway. So while the risk-reward pendulum had flipped from quite constructive to quite negative, so too did the general uh, potential trajectory that the business would take. And sure enough, as I was like thinking about selling, they had a really bad news event where Penn bought a company which effectively gave them a path to building their own tech stack and leaving Canby. And this was a couple of weeks after uh, Mohegan Sun in Connecticut had been uh, bought, not, not bought in the m and sense, but FanDuel paid so much damn money that it wouldn't make sense for them to work with Canby anymore, including FanDuel paying out Canby for the next few years, uh, which really changed my thesis on how to think about the long tail opportunity in the U.S. So everything was deboned. And so, you know, I'm really just putting this out there to kind of talk through some of the challenges I have on self-discipline, how to think about it, and this new steadfast rule I have, which is twofold. One is when the uh, probability weighting branches don't improve as a business moves along and achieves some of its ambitions. Um, it's not the kind of thing that you should think about from the position of holding for a very long time. You have to re-underwrite it effectively every step along the way. The other is that when the risk-reward pendulum flips, Uh, from this reward is greater to risk to risk is greater to reward. No matter what's happening, you have to start uh, exiting the position and trimming it down. You don't have to exit the entirety of the position, but you do have to start trimming it down. Um, And so, you know, I've really internalized these. I've had some time to mull it over. And I think those two hard rules are quite important for me. And I thought it would be timely and helpful to kind of revisit uh, this topic that I introduced in one of our earliest podcasts. And I'd love to hear, you know, I know we did talk about cell discipline uh, in one of our earlier podcasts as well, but I'd love to hear some of the rules you guys have, some of the ways you've approached these positions, and maybe some war stories from in the trenches about times you've uh, done something that you would regretted and how you've internalized some lessons from that.
1: Yeah, well, there's a lot here. I mean, I'm not close to the company like you are, so in this specific example, I can't uh, chime in on the facts of the case particularly well but it does strike me that i mean i guess it just depends as to whether or not the developments that happened in august are a change in the branches of possibility right which i'll come back to that in a second or whether it's just you know that that was a a temporary setback or an option that would have been really nice to develop but doesn't change the overall scenario too much i mean you know you you still would have more than doubled your money had you bought in at various points along the way in 2020 or even back a few years before that. So, you know, this isn't a total catastrophe, but it does speak to something that I'm always trying to avoid, which I don't care at all about mark-to-market losses or, you know, what what a decline in the quoted price would do in a month or a year, uh, even as it impacts my own results. But what I do care tremendously about is committing capital to something and then having something like this happen where it illuminates a mistake that I made with no chance of recovering it right so if this is still a good business with a you know potential long runway ahead of it and, and favorable economics that can kind of carry it along on the tides then it wouldn't worry me all that much i mean yeah this is this would have been unfortunate and and i agree you have to take note of the fact when the risk reward profile kind of flips and you know getting those decisions right and and kind of trimming so to speak, I don't, I don't generally like that term because you know it comes with consequences, right? You're not just trimming and that's the end of it, right? I mean, there's, there's tax consequences, there's frictional costs. I mean, it's, it's not just a simple one-off decision, but if, if that's the goal, I mean, it's not as easy as it looks, right? I mean, it's really hard to get those decisions right. Um, and I, I don't think I'm any good at it uh, in those scenarios. But one way I like to think about it is, and so you'd kind of mentioned this, are either are are of you guys familiar with the, the game Plinko? It's like a video, or it's a uh, a game that I think originated on The Price is Right, like years and years ago. And now, at least in the U.S., there's a game called The Wall. It's on, it's like my kids watch. It's like a, uh, a game show on TV. And it basically, I mean, if you Google it or look it up, like you'll see it. It's basically just a ball or a disc or chip that kind of bounces down this giant wall with a bunch of pegs sticking out. And so it's just a giant exercise in randomness and path dependency, right? Because as this thing bounces down through 10 or 20 of these pegs, it has to bounce either left or right as gravity's carrying it downward, right? And so once it bounces left or right, it can't reverse course and go back up and go the other way. And so in plinko, it's sort of like playing roulette, right? I mean, the odds are stacked a certain way, so that the game sort sure of knows what's going to happen over time. Um, But in real life, I mean, I think, Elliot, what you were talking about is exactly the way I think about it, which is that if if the ball or the puck starts bouncing left and all of the good outcomes are left, that's enormously important, right? I mean, that's huge and that's exactly what you want. And then if it starts bouncing to the right and all of the bad outcomes are over there, like, you know, bankruptcy, permanent loss of capital, (laughs) all that stuff, right? That's all clustered on the one side and it starts bouncing in that direction. That's when you really need to sit up and pay attention. And maybe in the middle is like still a decent outcome, but you start bouncing further away from the good outcomes and you just kind of have to recalibrate, you know, kind of reset your expectations and figure out like, all right, I'm, I'm either too big or I was wrong about which way this was going to go. I was wrong about the odds of the ball going left or whatever the case may be. And so that's kind of how I think about it, right? Because you're just trying to get those odds, which are inherently difficult to predict. And you're, you're trying to harness the inherently impossible task of, 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 ra- of randomness and, and kind of put it all in your favor. And if you can find companies that do that repeatedly, you know, I mean, we've, we've talked about it as not ad nauseum, but like one good thing seems to pretty much always lead to another good thing at Amazon. Like they, they systematically find a way to convert expenses into revenue sources on the income statement. And they find ways to monetize assets where it's like a fundamental core part of their operation. And they find a way to turn that into a bigger a bigger asset thing already is for them by you know rolling it out to other people. So that that's the kind of thing you're looking for, right? Whereas like the, the more nodes you hit, the more pegs you bounce off of, the more awesome opportunities unfold beneath you on the Plinko board. And so it's kind of a crude, crazy little analogy, but I think it's a it's been a helpful way for me to think about it.
2: Yeah, I would say um, you know, if you say I look for stocks that have downside protection, that that's a little bit like the three to one um ratio Elliot. because if um there's very little downside chances are the upside uh, to downside ratio is going to be favorable it's kind of the Pabra idea of heads i win tails i don't lose much again you don't lose much but you can win big um And I I like this idea of kind of moving along with the story and probability weighting uh, the various branches and so forth. Um, I'd love to hear more about how you do that in practice, uh, Elliot. And uh, a question, Elliot, um, another company that you've talked about in the past that worked out incredibly well uh, since you've owned it is uh, Roku. And as that stock went um, kind of through the stratosphere, how did you... Think about, you know, kind of the the upside to downside uh, ratio there.
0: Well, yeah, you know, I think they're both related questions. I think on one hand, it's impossible, you know, ex ante to say these are the probabilities and these are the actual trees that could go down um, and handicap everything appropriately. You could just think about what is today, but that's part of the dynamic process of following something. Uh, forging an initial hypothesis that's testable and managing it along the way, right? It's position management, not position watching in that sense. And I think Roku is a perfect example of that, where, um, you know, when I was starting with the company, they had less scale uh, than Comcast by a decent amount in households. Now they have decently more scale than Comcast in total households that they reach. And so you start thinking about the different levels of leverage they have over content companies, which is a lever they never could pull before. And then they start buying uh, the pieces to kind of build a full stack from managing advertisers ads across uh, the landscape to what inevitably will be dynamic insertion in uh, whatever kind of linear people watch through connected TV. Um, whatever kind, because it could be credentialed login with your actual linear, or it could be buying something like Hulu TV. Um, and so, you know, each step of the way, you have to dynamically think about how much um, these new pieces are worth. And, you know, uh, as they achieve certain ambitions, you could factually say that um, some portion of the risk has been de-risked and start moving forward. And, you know what what was your initial bear case doesn't have to stick as your bear case uh as you march on but you know i i mean i think it's hard i think it takes a lot of like paying close attention i think there are opportunities where you know i think that's one of the reasons why i like thinking about bayesian waiting on these things because um you don't want to uh leave yourself too prone to moving with the wind um and there are a lot of times where Just market action alone will try to change your mind on certain things. Um, You know, I think I've uh, I've mentioned the story of Roku dropping the first 15 days I owned it um, without a single green day. But the the follow up to that is once it finally was green, it started 2019. Uh, I think the first month its average daily range was upwards of eight percent. You know, I've often said something along the lines of. Uh, volatility is the way of the market grappling with a really wide range of potential outcomes. And so you know I think that's part of thinking about these probabilistic branches. How wide is the starting point? Um, does it narrow? Does the bottom get pulled up? Does the top get pushed up? Um, and in some cases, that a- absolutely can exist. I love your example, Phil, of, of Amazon and turning every uh, expense into a discrete business opportunity. I mean, who would have thought uh, this is where it's gone? I think Josh Tarasov had one of the most beautiful theses on Amazon. And I think he sells himself a little short when he says he didn't see exactly where AWS's success was coming from because he specifically said, you know, there are a lot of bets in this company that I don't know are going on. But that are this is how you think about how the extent of their bets and how you could kind of think about what return they're able to get on it. Um, but uh, But that's just
1: it, right. You have to get, you have to put yourself in that position to get lucky. Right. I mean, so I think the analysis there can be completely valid, even if it's limited to, this is a good company with the right culture. And they're taking a lot of bets where the Plinko board is stacked in their favor. And it doesn't really matter if I predict which way the ball's going to bounce because, you know, just like your upside downside ratio and a security price, like the upside downside on these bets paying off is just so enormously in their favor. Uh, you know, it's sort of like upside margin of safety, right? You, you just don't even need to make a prediction because all the outcomes are so positively skewed in your favor.
0: I totally love that Klinko board analogy, by the way. I'd never heard of that. I've like heard of the wall. My the old, kids aren't into it yet, yeah, but it's so perfect. It's, I, I think it's a hundred percent true. And you know, yeah, something like, like an old goofy
1: prices, right? Thing. It's kind of, it, it, like I said, the wall is the new version of it, but it's like a perfect example in, Randomness and path, depend- path dependency. And that's probably not what 99.9% of people are thinking about when they watch it, but that's what I thought of.
0: 100%. I think it's awesome. And I think to an extent, what you're talking about and finding these companies that have like this sort of skew, like in financial terms, we'd call it optionality. But I do think there's something like truly fundamental to it. Like you need companies who think that way. I'll give you an example of where it didn't exist. Like you look at DoorDash's success, you contrast that with where GrubHub went went wrong, and it's like DoorDash was thinking from the beginning about how much broader they could be, and GrubHub was like, "We're food, 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 food. We just want to deliver it. We don't think this other business could ever work." And granted, there's some people who are quite skeptical on DoorDash's ability to make it work, but you know, you you could identify certain cultural traits, certain strategies and tactics that they've taken along the way. Um, and think fundamentally if the business is in a position to even kind of broaden its tentacles. So th- these are all important questions to ask along the way. That said, it also gets really hard to think about when to sell some of these situations because you don't know if the market's carried away with it. Um, you know, Roku is actually one where I think I've uh, what I'd call traded around it quite well. um not the full position, but portions of it. and, you know, in stocks like this, you could get quite juicy premiums in options markets. So I've used options to kind of like take off risk and uh, extract some principal at different points along the way. Um, but I think position management, sell strategy, all that is like one of the areas I think I personally can improve the most. I see the least written on it. I think you know I've talked about some people I know in the past who could position manage their way to money with no, not a single good idea. Um, so that's, that's one of the areas I'm obsessed with. Um, and, and I think, I think a lot about it's, it's also hard when I know Phil, you, you similarly uh, aim to hold things for a long time and keep turnover low. So like try to limit the number of decisions we make. Right. So that too leads to if your propensity is toward inaction, you know, when does your threshold for action kick in?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a tough thing to balance, right? I mean, the, the fundamental premise there is that if I don't have, a lot of great insights I need to capitalize when I do have one. And I think that just reflects how difficult the world can be, right? I think markets are, are sufficiently efficient to not offer hundreds and hundreds of bargains at any given time, right? If there were, then yeah, then the most prudent thing would probably be to diversify into all of them somewhat equally weighted. But, um, you know, I think it's just logically true that you know, in a world that's competitive and where good ideas are scarce, you're not going to have your 50th best idea be as good as your 10th best idea. So that's what that is. But you're right. I mean, you can't let that discipline of having a high bar to make any investment be a deterrent from making an investment that's still pretty good, right? You can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And you also can't allow things that were good enough at some point, you know, a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, sit there for too long. So, you know, again, I do believe that cycles still exist. I do believe that capitalism is a force of creative destruction. I do believe the companies come and go. And so it's going to be, you know, the very few top fraction of a percent outliers that persist for decades, where the economics of the business and the returns on capital support that position for 5, 10, 20, 30 years, right? So I, you have to be aware of that fact that you cannot let any of us turn into dogma and just sit there and, be, and let patients turn into being stubborn, which is certainly something I have to watch out for.
0: Yeah. patience turning into stubborn makes me think of that uh, Munger quote about thumb sucking and how often people do it. For sure. Um, yeah. And I do feel like in this case, I was guilty of it because I was leaning towards selling, but I was like, nothing's going to bite me imminently. So I will hold off on this decision because you know, taxes. I've realized a lot of cap gains this year, so early next year, I'll do my realization. Even if the stock's a little lower, it'll be better. And uh, I think those are like never, ever good reasons to do it. I, I, I've i said this to, too many times to count, but like once you come up, come to a decision, um, you know, that's when you should act on it, not, not a moment later. Um, even if, uh, you know, if, y- y- even if you hold yourself to a standard of long holding periods or whatever else.
1: And I think that's true on both sides. I think it's true on the good and the bad. I mean, by nature, I think my do no harm mentality has kept me out of trouble for the most part, right? I mean, I, I haven't made too many mistakes where I woke up and realized that the analysis was wrong, the math was off, the odds were really way different from what I had calculated. But what it has definitely also caused me to do is sit there for too long and miss opportunities that were good enough and where i knew that they were good enough and so that is the thumb sucking element of it right so i think and the flip side of this the thumb sucking part of it on the negative is when you've had something that was good that's clearly gone bad and you sit there for too long it's like a almost a sense of nostalgia right like business or financial nostalgia where it's like boy the good old days of wells fargo you know i rode that thing for 20 years and it went up 25x or whatever the numbers were and then you know, you get hit between the eyes with some evidence that it's just you're know, not in Kansas anymore, and and you don't do anything about it. And you're right. I mean, the the right answer is to immediately jump on it when some clear evidence emerges, no matter how painful it is.
0: Yeah, I think you could effectively say you go for the left thumb, I go for the right thumb, or something like that. Because I'm yeah, exactly. To hear that last right. story.
1: Yep. Um. I know what you mean.
0: But yeah, no, that's 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 exactly right. It's it, it's um. Really easy to fall into that trap when you're I, I, every time it's been when I'm in something, not not when I'm looking at something. Uh, and I know the quote about errors of omission greater than commission, whatever. Um, but I think that's a different shade of it that uh, could manifest a lot. And by the way, I think maybe the punchline that I didn't say is that, yeah, I sold the whole position the second I heard that news, my thesis was gone. Like I can't just hang around oh, really? and try to re underwrite it. Yeah, I didn't wait a minute. Uh, the second the halt ended, it was like, oh, yeah, goodbye. Um, and I have no regrets, or no qualms about it. Um, I think that's how, you know, I've avoided a lot of further pains by being very uh, quick to act in situations where it's like that. I know some people might say, wait a day or two and see how it settles and how you feel. But I knew exactly the consequence of it immediately. You know, it was something I'd grappled with in advance, like what happens if. So there was no Thinking to do and God, why do I wait for the end to say this? I should have said it right away in the beginning of the section. Um, I was supposed. I think to... that's the. I think the key part
1: of it too is that you'd thought about it in advance. I think that's when you really can get tripped up is when you get blindsided. And so the fact that you'd thought through the scenarios and what the associated probabilities were, and it didn't really matter if it was a one in one hundred chance or a one in ten thousand chance, but it happened. You, you knew the implications and you knew you had to act right. I think that's the way to avoid just being your own worst enemy and and tripping over yourself when those sorts of things come up.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. You know, and obviously in every situation, you can't anticipate exactly uh, every range of possibility, right? Like I introduced the idea that I thought a recession would actually be good for them because they'd get more states and then you have no sports who could have anticipated that. I don't think that was in anyone's range of possible outcomes. So I definitely, you know, gave it some deep thought in the in those moments um which was different than you know in the, in this given situation for sure yeah i'm curious
2: elliot do you manage the emotional side of it uh, at all because let's say you you know the stock's down you sell it for a good reason but then it bounces right back up or you know goes up a lot after you sold out um there's got to be some kind of psychological component to this. So um, does that ever figure into the,
0: the decision? Yeah, you know, I've certainly had that happen to me. I I don't let that f- figure into the decision. I am somewhat immune to FOMO, which is helpful. Uh, i definitely not immune to other behavioral forces, but that's one that I uniquely don't really feel swayed by very often. Um, if at all. And so, you know, I, I think once, once I'm out, I'm out because, uh, I can't stand behind just waiting for something to work if I have no underlying thesis. Right. And I think it's far worse. Like, um, you know, I think of that Parcells quote, Bill Parcells, uh, the football coach, I hate to lose more than I love to win. I think emotionally I'd kick myself way more if I'm like, I want to be out of this thing, but I wanted to bounce 15% and then do it. Um, not sell it right there, and then what do you do when it's down fifteen percent from there? Do you say to yourself again, "Oh, next bounce, I'm going to sell it," and then it keeps going down, and then next bounce, and you fall into this kind of slide. I, I have this quote that I've used for myself on that: "Like mistakes beget mistakes. So if if you do make that first mistake, you're going to make a lot more mistakes. It's going to take more mind share, and the costs are going to be way more than what you'll actually realize in the loss on the position if you if you don't get out. So." You know, that's a really good question. It's one I've contended with myself on in the past, but uh, I, I like to think I'm a Band-Aid ripper. And when I have situations where I got to rip it, you know, sometimes it's going to hurt a lot, but you just got to do it because you don't want to realize the consequences of not doing it.
2: Yeah. Well, the topic of portfolio management is is a fascinating one, and I'm sure we'll return to it uh, many times going forward, Um, you know, that notion that a good portfolio manager can take a bunch of bad ideas and still do well, whereas a a great analyst can do poorly because he's a bad portfolio manager. That's just uh, really fascinating. Um, I still don't understand how you can uh, make money if all your ideas are bad, (laughs) you know, but maybe there is a way Uh, I haven't found it. I didn't
0: say bad ideas. I said the absence of ideas.
2: (laughs) Okay. Got it. No ideas,
0: uh, just actions.
2: Right. Right. Phil, did you want to? No, I think it's
1: fascinating though. I mean, I, I definitely did not appreciate the kind of magic sauce that a good portfolio manager brings to the table until I got into that role. Right. I think when, you, at least at a lot of firms I think the junior folks are often tasked with generating good ideas and then they're kind of fed into the machine and you, you don't really even sometimes know or have true visibility into what the overall portfolio looks like and uh, I think it's backwards right I mean I think it helps to have a perfectly flat organization or decision-making structure but you can't then, underestimate how important it is to have that you know portfolio mindset because things do correlate they interrelate um you know you you can't i I agree you're obviously not going to do well with all bad ideas but uh you're certainly not going to do well with all good ideas and no sense of how they fit together
2: so well on that note uh thank you guys for a, a great discussion uh really looking forward to uh the upcoming season Take care for now, and uh, we'll reconnect next week.
1: Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research driven membership organization. Learn more at MOIglobal.com.